Hello and welcome to the GC Call. This is a podcast we're bringing to you from Gulf Capital, the leading alternative investment firm in emerging markets from North Africa to Southeast Asia. I'm Nabil Ismail, Executive Director in the Private Equity Team. And I'm Alvar Abeya, Managing Director in the Private Equity Team. Think of the GC Call as a window into the investment process. In addition to our own expertise, you'll hear from other regional investors, entrepreneurs, and management teams, as well as advisors who participate in the overall process to demystify it together. We're delighted to welcome Norma Taki to the GC Call today. Norma looks after transaction services at PwC, specializing in financial due diligence and business valuation. She brings over 24 years of experience with PwC and is the perfect person to talk about financial due diligence or FDD, as well as vendor due diligence or VDD. I'd like to think of this episode uh, focusing on the founder's journey. So the founder would start with getting the company ready for a transaction and post that you go through that actual transaction with the founder and eventually once they've dealt with an institution uh, they basically uh, would want to think about a vendor due diligence do we do it do we not do it what's the benefit of it so maybe we can start with the first part which is how do founders get ready? And I think this is a great question because a lot of people don't start thinking about how to get ready until they're in the market, right? Um, and by then, it's a bit too late. So some of the things that you need to think about is what is your financial reporting, okay? Um, systems like, do they produce the right KPIs? Do they produce um, the right information that you would need when an investor or someone else is looking at the company? Um, we encourage that this is done early on and we encourage that this is part of their management reporting. So what happens is your management reports that are issued monthly are sufficient. So anyone coming in looking at the company has that data already. You're not reproducing things for a transaction. So it becomes part of the, ND, the DNA sorry, of uh, uh, an organization. We would encourage, you would expect me to say this, obviously we would encourage a big four um, just because of the quality of the audit so that you're not also looking at is the audit done properly? Is there accounting and financial and IFRS adjustments that need to take place? Um, and you would need to get um, the, the financial and the management team ready for a sale process in terms of their bandwidth, their time, and who is assigned to take this, because it's, it is a strenuous exercise. It's on top of everyone's day job. So if you have the management reporting systems, if you have um, audited financial statements, and if you have a team that's, that's available and can be ready, then you have the first step to um, going to market. Now, it'll be great if someone can come in and say, oh, we've also kind of thought about what is adjustments and quality of our things and what that, and, and I know we've had experience with you guys on certain transactions where you've already started thinking along that. But if I'm a founder perspective, that's not usually something that they are used to thinking and looking at. Do you think that this is also an issue that we have in our region where we don't tend to invest enough into the finance function, including hiring proper management in the finance function? Because that's still perceived as, you know, a cost, extra layer of cost, we don't need it. And then suddenly you're ready for a transaction and you don't have those folks 
I think what happens is you have a finance function, but is that finance function and a bookkeeping function, an auditing function, you know, getting ready for an audit, or are they more of a CFO mindset, more of an investment growth mindset? If you have someone in that team that has gone through any investment journey historically, then they would be ready. But in most cases, we find that it is just a bookkeeping function. And you, can you explain the difference for the audience of those two, you know, in a very stark? You have an accountant layman. that will just simply look at um, what is recorded and what I need to do for an audit. And you have someone that's thinking about how I maximize and put the information together so I can get a good deal done. And I think that will segue very nicely into something that I think we need to cover. Why do you need to do an FDD if you have an audit? And we get that question yeah. all the time. Oh, we just want a big four to come and do an audit. No, no, no. In a transaction, you don't need an audit. Hopefully ha you have an audit already, but what you need is someone to come in and do a financial due diligence. And that lens is very different. So what an audit does is you come in, an auditor comes in, and this is important, but it doesn't give you what you need from an investment decision making uh, process. An audit will come in and say, are these numbers correct in accordance with an accounting standard? In this region, we adopt IFRS, so that's critical. And you'll end up with a financial statement. And they'll provide you those financial statements. So the assurance that you get from an audit is those numbers are accurate and they comply with accounting standards. Now, you come into financial due diligence and a lot of people ask us, so what is, how is that different? It's a basis, the audited financial statements are as a basis, but we look at it from the perspective of an investment, investor. So what is the nature of the deal? What are the risks? Does the deal fit a portfolio? Have you done the essential homework and is it you know, an informed business decision? So, okay, again, Norma, what does that mean? That means that we, looked at, we look at a few things. We look at the EBITDA. What is your recurring level of profitability? And then what we look at is what if there's any one-offs? An example, you had a fire in a factory. Your audit will report that. That's a loss for that year. We'll come in and say, that shouldn't be there. That's a one-off cost. Um, you had, and we're seeing quite a lot of that now, all the COVID-related adjustments, right? These are one-offs. So did you get a you know, government support for salaries? Did you get um, anything that is um, a one-off cost? We'll remove that. We also look at something called performer. So has there been any structural changes in the way you're running your business that will have an impact on the business going forward? An example, you renegotiated a large rent contract or a rebate from a customer. So your projections will look differently than your historical. And we will come up with something called an adjusted EBITDA. After that, we will look at your net debt. What is the net debt? What is the cost of that and what it, what it, what it means? And that is really important because it's a dollar to dollar adjustment to something I'll come to in a bit. So, and have we captured everything in the net debt? What are the debt-like adjustments? For example, if you've declared dividends and, and not paid them, we'll adjust something like this. And then your working capital. So your books from a balance sheet perspective will have your reported working capital, right? These are my accounts receivable. These are my inventory. And the audit will look at whether that's valued correctly or not. But we'll say, great, that's your reported. But what's your target? And what are the, those three adjustments come up with? Your EV to equity bridge. That's what a financial due diligence Can you program. explain? 
the EV to equity bridge. Again, where this podcast hopefully is being heard also by founders that maybe they, as you said at the beginning, are not very familiar with sort of that that correlation. Okay, maybe I should have started with that because the financial due diligence, a main outcome is the EV to equity bridge. That. So what does that mean? Um, when you go to market, you have a price in mind, okay? Your enterprise value. And that's usually a multiple of your earnings. We spoke earlier about what is your earnings. You'll adjust to make sure that's a recurring level. So that's your EBITDA, right? So it's usually a multiple of that. That will give you your enterprise value. Then there are adjustments to that to get to your equity value, which is what is usually agreed on as a price to transact on. And those adjustments would be your net debt, which I just explained. And, and net debt is really important. And there's always a discussion around whether it should be net debt or working capital. If you're from a, you know, if you are from a sell side or a buy side, that will differ because a net debt adjustment is a dollar to dollar adjustment to your price. So if I have a, a, a an enterprise value of a hundred, I find uh, 20 uh, in net debt adjustments. My net so far is 80, right? Then you adjust for your working capital. The working capital adjustment is basically what is your delivered working capital at the date of the transaction, less your target, which you set when you're negotiating. So as you can see, the working capital is, a, is the movement between those two. So it's not a dollar to dollar adjustment. And then you have plus and minus other adjustments that you agree on in the SBA things, exposures, et cetera. You get to your equity price. That is essentially what an FDD helps. And, and from the founder's perspective, I think what you said regarding recurring profitability and setting it up, being able to articulate and show how things are changing in yeah. the business. How do you as a founder believe it's going to change? I'd like to separate sort of two cases that we've been talking about yeah. sort of dancing around, which is the founder where he or she are selling the business to a strategic, as you were saying. And obviously you need to be able to, to show what the business is going to add to that strategic acquire. Um, or the founder, he or she, that are saying, hey, come into my business, Mr. Investor, partner with me, because look at this 10-year journey I have ahead of yeah. me, right? So we call that period, whether it's one or the other, because we sell to a strategics as well, right? The dating period, right? Yeah. That's where you have to show everything rosy. And it, but fundamentally, that perspective is very different because when you're selling to a strategic, yes, you have to sell a plan going forward. But basically, once you sold, assuming you're selling 100% control, you basically are ending once that relationship, once yeah. you've sold. So I guess the strategic is more and what you guys get engaged for from either the buy side or the sell side is to show that everything is happy clappy on a rear view mirror basis. And yes, there's a trend going forward, but sort of the big vision 10 years out is less important than a founder who's saying, come and invest in my business for the next five, 10 years. This is where I'm going. This is awesome. This is what I'm... And there, I think, being able to prove out the case, what you've done, and how the business is going to change with market impacts, things that you know your competitors are doing becomes so much more important because you know I go back to um, uh, a um, 
something that I think Peter Thiel talked about in his uh, book Zero to One, where he says that they did sort of a, an EV analysis of the business of uh, um, uh, PayPal when they sold it to eBay back, I think it was 2002. And they had projected that something like 90% of the expected value was actually 10 years out. They were just really starting, given where payments were, were, et cetera. So it is very important to be able to craft the story, but fact-based. Where are you coming from? How far you un- you understand how, how much you've drilled down into the business to be able to articulate that equity story, that equity growth story at the end. So those two perspectives, I think, are very different. Um, I understand the readiness of the company on one side, but when it comes to a culture aspect here, a lot of founders feel very reluctant to share information with uh, FDD advisors. And part of it is, well, that FDD is an auditor with my competitor and so on. So I'm sure you hear these arguments all the time. So how do you navigate it? Look, I think what's really important um, to get everyone comfortable with is what are we trying to do and why, right? So here is not, we're not taking information to go share it with anyone else, right? It is for a very specific uh, purpose and um, for us as financial due diligence advisors, ethical roles are critical, even within the organization. So when I speak to you, and most of the time when I, when you see transaction happening, we don't t- say we're selling company X or we're working on company X. We're doing project Y. And so there's code names that are involved because even within the same organization, so within PwC, a team sitting next to me doesn't know what I'm working on because they could be on the other side, they could be working something different. So that is really, really important. But it's an educational process that has to happen between advisors and the founder around what do we do with this information? This information is only for the analysis to produce what I mentioned earlier. And after that, the information is not shared with anyone and it's not discussed in public. Isn't that sort of a lost opportunity for PwC? It's a a massive. Because, I mean, you're seeing different companies across different regions. You, you know, Team X in Dubai could say, hey, I've just looked at this company that has, you know, wants a sale. And uh, you hear from Team Y in London that wants to acquire just such a business in this part of the world, and you could be you could be making like off like bandits as investment bankers, right? <laughs> Merchant banking. Uh, no, why why okay. doesn't PwC do that? So a different team does that, right? So let's establish we have a <laughs> good, corporate good. finance team That's what that does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a different team, the corporate finance team definitely does that. Now, mind you, what we talk to is the founders, right? So once we're doing the financial due diligence and with invest- with the with the advisors, if they're advisors or with you guys and say, look, are you open to, to having us discuss this with our colleagues somewhere else because they might have um, uh, buyers, we'll do it in a controlled manner. So discussing the transactions in a controlled manner, it's fine. It's I think the sensitivity is around exchanging of data. Yeah. And we are very much focused on a sector or in a region, right? So you come to PwC, you say, I have a transaction 
in this in this sector, you don't usually get the same person, right? You'll get someone who's done multiple deals and that knowledge is with, with us. And that's when you'll come to me and say, so how does this compare to something else? I won't tell you this compares to company Y and therefore um, this is your different, but I'll tell you from our experience and having done multiple diligence, you know, the gross profit is in this range. We've seen these issues. We've done that. And that's, again, part of the experience that we bring on the table um, and, uh, you know, what will be an outcome of our financial due diligence. So I might have made it sound a bit too mathematical earlier, the EV to equity bridge, but to come up with some of these adjustments is based on our experience and what we've seen, what we've done before. And that's basically on the financial due diligence. There's the orphan child tax, tax. diligence. I don't think it will be orphan anymore, I mean, I right? Think, yeah, with I agree. every <laughs> with whatever's changing in in the region. region. Yeah. We and I think your question is, you know, why don't you see tax due diligence? If we look at global deals, we see it all the time. There's the you know we have an M and A tax team that literally sits with our deals team, right? Because the way they will look at things is very different than a tax consultant, right? Um, I think by the nature of this region and not having had taxes until recently, that wasn't very common. And we still get the kind of feedback of, oh, really, it's mostly UAE company. Uh, it's only VAT. We'll skip that, right? But no, you could be leaving some Transfer pricing. Transfer pricing. And now, now withholding taxes, customs, right? It's always been important if we widen the kind of horizon, if we if we look at Egypt, the Levant, Saudi Arabia, we would strongly advise that there is a tax due diligence that takes place. A lot of people say, oh, but we can cover this in reps and warranties. Okay, so why should we do that? We'll just put a general uh, representation or, or an indemnity in our SVA around tax. Yeah, but it, that doesn't hold as strong as an actual adjustment in your in your books. And how do you do that? And it becomes, again, if you're selling, if you're, private equity selling completely then they can't there's no recourse if you are strategic selling 100 percent, there's you know little room for that so i think you'll see a lot more tax diligence happening we are seeing a lot of queries around now today of the implication on the projections right because you're looking at it longer longer term and, and you mentioned a very interesting part which is reps and warranties you also get involved in reviewing some of these documents so can you tell us more about that? Traditionally, historically, financial due diligence um, practitioner will be able to read an SPA. And we'll be able to give you comments on it, especially on the pricing mechanism. Um, more recently, we have started to have a more specialized team look at this. Um, you ask me why. And a lot of people say, oh, but the, you know, the legal guys are looking at it. I just need you to look at it if you've captured everything. What and, and, and this is really critical, and I'm quite passionate about this because I've seen the value that this team can bring, right? So basically what they make, what they do is they ensure all the commercial, all the accounting discussions that have taken place about pricing mechanism are carefully considered in the terms of the SPA, right? To protect what you've agreed on and to make sure that you're not leaving value on the table. We give an example in our SBA trainings globally that there was, and I will, I need to get that, I think, because I keep giving it as example, there was a comma once that changed 20% of the value because you're interpreting legal terms um, by, by not taking into consideration some of the commercial aspects of the financial um, discussions that have happened around the price mechanisms. So that is critical. 
you need all lenses on your SPF. So, boys and girls, if you're listening, apparently punctuation is still important. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to what you said about pricing, and obviously we see that as sort of the number one reason why deals fall apart. So how many of those that get to diligence stage still fall apart on a percentage basis? And what are sort of the top three, four reasons? I would I w- would love to see all my diligence go to to closing and be announced because a lot of people see us, see us running around and say what are you working on we can't talk about it. Um I would say maybe 30% goes to closing. And Only. goes yeah, yeah. Um and that has a lot to do with preparation and when you're not prepared you're leaving quite a lot on the table and therefore you have the discussion but the number one reason is obviously value expectations. Right, seller thinks their value is up here. Uh, buyer looks at the diligence and sees the business is is down here. Um, I would say that's the number one reason where you know you can't bridge that valuation expectation. I think um, the second one would have to be maybe around um, structures and how companies are organized and where you're going to buy into and buy out to. And people ignore that until much later. Uh, but in reality, sometimes uh, a legal or a tax structure wipes away quite a bit of the value. Um, and that unfortunately comes much later. And I'd want to say the last one would be, and I know after this, I'll remember a lot of other reasons that are uh, probably critical, but I would want to say and I'm moving away from the financial because I think the financial is really covered in the valuation uh, gap. I would say contractual. Um, so here would be um, legal ownerships, contracts with customers, secured revenue, et cetera. So contract, how do you have things firmly done? Banking arrangements. Banking arrangements. All of that, again, gets picked up in the diligence, which is missed. And if you don't have someone that looks at it that way, you'll miss it. I'd say those are the top three. What are you seeing? No, I think you 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 hit probably all the top three. I think the one maybe that I would have added is um, management arrangements as well. So under contractual for me, maybe right, we missed. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. So when specifically there's key people or yes. one key founder and they leave right up until the last minute, the conversation about okay, so how much am I going to get in this next phase of growth? Or suddenly, you know, the founder, he or she wakes up or suddenly has a change of heart as, actually, you know, I I want this much in the new arrangement, right? Whether it's you're coming in as an investor or you're selling. So if that change of heart tends to be quite critical uh, if it's in the last few seconds of the game. So I, I would definitely urge founders to really think hard about if they're selling uh, to a strategic or if they're bringing on investors, what is the level of compensation, of ownership, of uh, involvement, et cetera, upfront, not suddenly at the end, oh yeah, well, if this is how things are going to be run, then I want X, Y, Z. You you have to sort of be very clear about that formula that you want for yourself, 
from day one. I think spot on because, and we find a lot of the time when they go through that diligence process or that sale process, their eyes open up to a lot of things and that's where it comes in, which is why I think, and it's really important. So if you're a founder thinking about selling, why I think vendor due diligence is really important. Um, because that kind of brings up all of these issues right up front as you are in the preparation stage, right? So if there is anything, you kind of have an indication of where your value is. You kind of have an indication of um, your structure and your kind of organization and if there's any tax exposures, legal exposures, and you have then a view on your contractual arrangements. And you would have started thinking of any of the kind of management compensations and how they will have an impact on the value. Um, and that is critical from a from a preparation phase. Definitely. I mean, that was anyways, my last and final subject, which is VDD, whether to do it or not. Yeah. Obviously, at Gulf Capital, we always like doing it yeah. for uh, many, many reasons. And uh, we just want to make sure that this company is sellable because ultimately we are exit. We are exiting. But as Alvar, you also like to say, we are probably raising funds and that's also very important if you have multiple parties. So what is it? Why is vendor diligence very important, Norma? Why, why do we look at it? So a vendor due diligence is a diligence that is commissioned by the seller um, as part of their sale process. Um, but the key element of a vendor due diligence is the financial due diligence advisor is independent and ultimately their duty of care is not to the seller, is to the final bidder. That's what makes this document solid and independent and um, uh, relied upon by potential uh, buyers. Why is this important? Because as you're going through that process, and obviously it's an interactive process with the management, you're starting to identify things. You're, so you're addressing issues right at the beginning. You're starting to come up with your EV to equity bridge. You're starting to see things. And you can rectify some of them in the process. So simply, if you don't have a contract for something and you know they bring it up, you can fix that. Um, or if you don't have certain detailed analysis on something that will drive value or will help us understand certain um, growth metrics, they can fix that. Now, does this add more burden in a sale process? Yes, at the beginning, but imagine what you're going to save later because what happens is in a, in when you have a VDD, you put that in your data room and multiple bidders look at it. They'll engage their own advisors, but they will be they'll be having that document first. They're anchored with it. They're anchored with it. That will That should be comprehensive enough and all... Um, a seller is getting uh, questions on this and follow-ups and they'll meet with the financial uh, advisor and get the questions done here. If you didn't have that, and let's say you go to market and you have ultimately five or three bidders looking at this business, you'll have three independent teams doing their own full due diligence. And that is a massive burden on management. It's time consuming. Everyone would look at things from a different lens. We'll start asking the same questions, but we'll want it differently. It is really painful. So, so do, does it mean that if it's more than one or two bidders, then that's the only time when VDD really works? If you really don't think that this asset could attract a lot of bidders, would you still do it? 
Yeah, because I think you might be able to leave value on the table if you don't have someone looking at it that way. Now you can say whether you should do a VA or a VDD, you can have that that debate. But yeah, the other part, which you might say, okay, we have one bidder, it saves time. So you don't go to market the moment you decide that you're going to go through a sale process, right? You prepare. Um, and so what if even if there wasn't a vendor due diligence, you're still doing preparations, you're opening up data room, you're starting to have discussions, you're putting an IM together, et cetera. So during that process, you could be doing a diligence. And therefore, when you go to market, even if you have one or two bidders, right, you have something already done. And that if, takes how long, basically? I know it depends. But... It depends. But I would say because if VDD is naturally more detailed, because you have to have everything there, I would say a minimum of four weeks. And we've seen it go up to eight to 12. And and so that is it. It's the time aspect. It's the time to go to market and the time uh, of management's time and early identification of issues. And I, I really like that, the way you articulate it. It's really a standardization of what you're gonna put out there of yourself, of your company, and what the company is able to achieve in terms of what we said, recurring profitability, as well as the looking forward plans. So that standardization is key. And I see it a little bit akin to you know an IPO readiness review. Yes. At the end of the day, if you're gonna sell a company to a public host of investors, now, you wouldn't expect every every single retail investor to start asking diligence questions on that business. You have to prepare a prospectus that talks about everything in the company. And before you get to the prospectus, you have this IPO readiness review. I mean, we can talk about that in another yeah. <laughs> episode. Yeah, episode. Sure. But, I, but I think that that is sort of key to standardize and to make sure that everybody is to use you know, a bit of a Catholic term, singing from the same hymn sheet. And I think the other thing is you do not want to go out there with an IM and then suddenly have um, a diligence uh, report that identifies issues. So if it's well-planned and well-managed, then you have both coming out or nearly done at the same time. So the numbers talk to each other. And the other output that people don't think is you practically would have a VDR ready because we would have asked for the questions. We would have... Um, told you how information would have needed to be made if you had put it in a VDR, then all you have to do is say, these are the files I'm gonna share, tick, 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 done. And so you are coming out with a report and a nearly ready VDR. And is management outsourcing part of this later on? So for example, like if the bidder has a question, they'll be like, okay, why don't you reach out to? Yeah, great question. So what happens after the VDD goes into the data room and uh, bidders start looking at it? Typically, um, again, depending on the process, but after two, three days of releasing the VDD report, um, the other side will ask for uh, expert sessions. And so they will send a list of questions, having reviewed the VDD, and will come to us and we will do an hour or two hours of going through all of their questions um, on the VDD. So again, that's a burden taken out from from management. And we, uh, we answer those questions. And then if there's follow-up questions, we follow up with that. And whether management attends those sessions or not, it really depends on the process. Um, it used to be before that it's just the advisors between each other. We've now seen more and more that the other side asks for management so that they can have a comprehensive um, kind of meeting. Elvira, I believe you had a certain view on the importance of VDD for growth rounds as well. When you're doing a growth round typically, whether it's here in this region that has actually developed quite well over the last six years, 
over out west, you'll have multiple parties looking at documents. So, you know, back to your part, uh, your, your argument about being prepared and trying to actually do the work at the front end and then reducing the level of interaction and the amount of, um, uh, yes, interactions with, with management teams from the different investors. Because if you're going to go through, you know, you have six or seven parties trying to fulfill a round and they all want to ask questions, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be crazy. I mean, I definitely saw that uh, was the case in one of the earlier rounds in Karim. Yes. Uh, so I think the Rakuten um, uh, round, you know, we it, it was for about two months, just constant, constant diligence questions. Uh, if we would have had a more prepared vendor diligence, then obviously I think it would have been smoother. But again, you... You grow and you learn as you go. And the region is developing to Correct. kind of understand that. And I think uh, on that, the only other one I would, uh, the only other thing I would say on the growth is um, the importance of looking at other types of diligence as well, other than just the financial and perhaps the tax. And I think for us, looking at it from a financial diligence lens only, in many aspects, we feel like we have one eye open and one eye closed. And so we, Definitely recommend that input as well. Perfect. Well, any final advice to founders or, you know, either do, doing the process or getting ready or in exit mode? I think we've dwelled on this point, but preparation, 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 preparation. and no shortcuts. Um, I think any, any shortcuts that anyone takes will come up um, later on in the process and um, will leave value on the table. Well, thank you so much. And uh, again, partner in crime. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you for Great. having me. Thanks for the insights. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the GC Call with me, Nabil Ismail and Alvaro Abeya. The GC Call is brought to you by Gulf Capital and is produced by Amaya Media. You can follow the show in your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anrami, Pocket Cast, and all of the others too. We'll be back again in two weeks.